0: Welcome back to another Lost Ladies of Lit mini-episode, everybody. I'm Amy Helms, here with my writing partner and BFF, Kim Askew. Hi, everybody. So, Kim, I'm wondering, what is your official position on old dolls? Do you find them comforting or creepy?
1: I'd say... um a little bit comforting, depending on the doll. I just ordered a Raggedy End doll that looked like the one that I had when I was a kid for my daughter, but most of the time, kind of creepy, maybe.
0: Yeah, I think it can be a combo of both mm-hmm. for sure. Yeah. <laughs> um, today, we are going to be talking about a lonely doll, and if you're a listener who already knows that reference, uh, I am sure you are stoked for this episode. If, however, the phrase, The Lonely Doll, does not register for you at all, then Kim and I are very excited to introduce you to a children's book that I think is going to become your new obsession. Or maybe it's just me. I don't know. Kim, are you as fascinated by Dare Wright and her Lonely Doll series as I am?
1: Yes, absolutely. I i think was introduced to her, uh, Dare Wright and her books through Lauren Sarand, who was one of our guests in the past. Um, And also my sister had somehow, I think, gotten them for her daughter, Chloe, and I read them to her when Chloe was young. Yeah, which, you know, they were definitely interesting and unforgettable.
0: Everybody will have their own opinion about whether or not these books are appropriate to read to children today or not, and we'll get into that.
1: Absolutely. So for those of you who don't know, it's a mid-century era children's book series. There are 10 books total, and it's about a pretty little doll named Edith, who is sadly on her own in the world until she meets two teddy bears, Mr. Bear and Little Bear, and they agree to adopt her into their family. Edith and Little Bear usually get up to all sorts of mischief in the stories, which are told through these amazingly creative black and white photographs, typically taken in and around New York City. Mr. Bear is their stern yet loving protector. We as the readers get an almost voyeuristic look into their lives together.
0: Yeah, and I came across these books when my daughter, Julia, was very young. Her babysitter had taken her to the library. They came home with a few of these books. I had never seen or heard of them before, but I was so charmed by the photographs in them. They have a very retro, kind of a noirish feel. Mm-hmm. And the way that these inanimate objects are arranged in the shot, they very much come to life. So there's a shot where the doll, Edith, is tumbling down off a ladder, for instance, and it feels cinematic. You feel like she's really falling, you know? They feel real and they feel alive
1: they absolutely do um and there's something also very dark about them so i love that you said almost noirish there's a feel of something maybe kind of sinister going on um mm-hmm. in them and they're very striking for that reason
0: yeah I think it could be the way that the tableaus are kind of lit. There's this play of light and shadow. And then you combine that with the narrative of Edith's fear of abandonment and rejection. that's kind of a through line through all of the books. And then there are the spanking
1: scenes. Oh, yes, the spanking scenes. And there are a few of those right across the different books.
0: Yeah. When Little Bear and or Edith take their mischief too far... Mr. Bear disciplines them by taking them across his knee to administer spankings. This definitely shocked me when I first encountered it. It's totally inappropriate for a children's book in this day and age, but obviously when the books were published in the late 50s and 60s, it wouldn't have been seen as any big deal. So I know there are parents who probably wouldn't want to expose their kids to it, and I understand that, but there's also just so much to love about these books. And frankly, even if you don't have kids, I think you should check these books out. They're that terrific. Yet for as adorable and creative and brilliant as these books are, they are somehow unsettling. Like you said, Kim, I mean, there's one of the sequels, it's called Edith and Big Bad Bill. Big Bad Bill is a bad bear and he winds up kidnapping her, gagging her and tying her to a tree. So yeah, you know, maybe not for kids. (laughs)
1: Right. I see them as more art books almost now. Amy's right about that scene. And it also takes us back to the creepy, cute paradox of dolls. And I know a lot of people have said the darkness that seems to lurk in the periphery of these books springs from the author's own tragic life.
0: Yeah. I think you could rightly say that Dare Wright was a bit of a lonely doll in her own right. She had some issues, which we'll get into. And there was a lot of sadness in her life, but there was also a lot about her life that was utterly fantastic. She literally lived a fairy tale existence in some respects. So let's just get to the bottom of it all.
1: Nice pun, Amy. <laughs>
0: let's go for it. Okay. So let's, <laughs> let's dive in here. So there are a couple of great biographies out on Dare Right, which I would definitely recommend you guys check out. One is called The Secret Life of the Lonely Doll, The Search for Dare Right by Jean Nathan. And that's the one I read in preparation for this podcast. But then there's also a biography written by Wright's own goddaughter, who is now the heir to her estate. That's a woman named Brooke Ashley. And that book is called Dare Wright and the Lonely Doll.
1: Yeah, to really understand Dare Wright, you have to first know about her mother because the two women really go hand in hand. It makes me think of Little Edie and Grey Gardens. Oh, Um, yeah. That's a good comparison. Right. Her mother's name was Edith Stevenson. She went by Edie, and she was a very well-known portrait painter. She was from Youngstown, Ohio, and was later based out of Cleveland. For decades, she was highly sought out by the regions and later the nation's wealthy and distinguished art patrons. She went to the White House to paint President Woodrow Wilson. That painting actually, though, was ruined in a fire, sadly. She also did a portrait of Winston Churchill from a photograph, which apparently still hangs at the University of Bristol in England. Greta Garbo later commissioned her to paint her portrait. So she was kind of big time.
0: Yeah, she was a big deal and really talked about and written about. Actually, in terms of her popularity as an artist, Edith Wright, the mother, she reminds me of the fictional Dallas O'Mara from Edna Ferber's novel So Big, which we talked about back in July. She was this well-respected painter. She had boundless confidence in chutzpah. She was always promoting herself and her achievements. She absolutely loved publicity. She was a little mendacious too, because she could fib a little to make herself sound more impressive. And she did that a lot. But she was able to earn a decent amount of money for
1: herself painting. She had to hustle for that money, actually, though, because she was a single mom. Her marriage to Ivan Wright had fallen apart. And by 1920, Edith and her five-year-old daughter, Dare, were out on their own.
0: And this is where the story gets pretty weird. So Dare had a brother who was two years older than she was. His name was Blaine. And in a series of strange events, when the parents split, Blaine ended up moving to New York with his father. And then Dare went with her mother. And it was sort of never spoken of Edie used to tell people her husband had died and she never mentioned having a son, let alone did she correspond with him. So it's kind of like the setup from that old Parent Trap movie where you're thinking,
1: God, how could the parents do this? Like, how could they separate these siblings? Absolutely. I was completely thinking of the Parent Trap movie. That's exactly right. And not only was Dara ripped away from the older brother she'd loved very much, but her mother was basically all consumed with her career. She would leave Dare home alone to fend for herself, or she would give Dare strict instructions that she could not be disturbed.
0: As a result, Dare wound up finding comfort and companionship in her dolls, including one that she'd been gifted by her mother. It was an Italian made doll from the Lensi Company. It had a felt face and curly hair, and Dare and her mother, Edie, decided to name her Edith which given how truly self-absorbed the mom was, it's so par for the course that she's (laughs) like, why don't you name her my name? But this doll, Edith, would eventually be the doll that takes center stage in the books, the Lonely Doll series, but not before Dare had given it a significant glow up. And we'll get to that later.
1: Wow, the psychology going on here. I mean, a a psychiatrist would have a, a field day with all this. Anyway, eventually Edie sent Dare, when she was around 12 years old, to a boarding school that was right down the street just to get her out of the way, basically. And everyone at school knew that Dare was the daughter of the famous painter, but Dare really still struggled to fit in there.
0: When Dare was in the presence of her mother, which was infrequent around that time, but she was often the subject for her portraiture when she did see her mom. So Edie wound up painting dozens of oil paintings of her daughter from childhood through adulthood. It was almost as if Dare was a prop for her mom's painting, just as her own doll would later become her prop. And needless to say, Dare was growing up to be such a beautiful woman. I would encourage you to Google photos of her. She was stunning and glamorous. She reminds me a lot of like Lady Gaga or... A Barbie doll, even. I mean, her waist was the size of a napkin ring. I do think she did have some eating disorder issues on and off,
1: but she was really tiny. She had the most killer fashion sense. So it's no surprise that in her early adulthood, after a failed stint as an actress, she got into modeling. The camera loved her, as you can see by the many photographs of her, and we'll post some on our Instagram too. Today, she would have certainly been a phenomenon on Instagram. She was just visually arresting.
0: Yeah, and the biography by Jean Nathan that I read, it's just loaded with photos of both Dare and her mom. It's really gratifying. So like you said, Kim, the camera loved her, but she also loved the camera. She enjoyed experimenting with taking pictures, and she eventually decided that photography was the career path she really wanted to pursue, especially since she wasn't really an attention seeker by nature. She was kind of shy. Her connection to magazines as a model helped her ease her way into that world of professional photography. So she started doing assignments for Good Housekeeping magazine.
1: And then meanwhile, around this time, her brother reemerged in her life. An uncle decided he was going to reunite the siblings. And when they finally met again in their 20s, they were almost smitten with one another.
0: Yeah, the biography I read says that they actually toyed with the idea of marrying and pretending they weren't siblings. I'm a little bit skeptical of this claim, and it, if it was true, it was just very brief first few weeks of knowing each other. But needless to say, they adored one another.
1: Though Blaine, for the rest of his life, had no real love for Edie, the mother who abandoned him. And right. at one point, Blaine was annoyed to find out that Dare had never been given a teddy bear growing up. He rectified that situation by going out and buying her a Stife Bear that would later have a starring role as Mr. Bear in the books. Dare bought Little Bear herself.
0: And Blaine may have held a grudge against his mom, but Dare didn't. You know, the older she got, the closer she and Edie became. But they developed a very codependent, borderline unhealthy relationship with one another In some ways, their love for each other was really sweet, but in other ways, it was unnerving. And their dynamic kind of reminded me a little bit of mommy dearest, you know, there wasn't Mm -hmm. physical abuse, but this attention seeking mom just being focused and obsessed with her daughter. And, Mm -hmm. you know, she neglected Dare when she was young, but as Dare grew up and became beautiful, Edie was really needy, Edie, needy. And she just was a permanent fixture in Dare's life. Um, it seems like she kind of smothered her, you know, they were best mm-hmm. friends, they were travel partners, they were playmates. And I say that literally, because they liked to play dress up. Outsiders would say like, yeah, I, I saw them together. And I was I just found them off. There was something weird about them, you know, mm-hmm. but they did make an impression wherever they went. And even for the decades that they lived in two different cities, because Edie remained in Cleveland once Dare moved to New York City, they still saw each other constantly. They were always flying back and forth every few weeks. They often slept in the same bed when they were visiting each other. They were just connected at the hip.
1: Yeah, they also loved to sunbathe naked together on their summer vacations. Their favorite destination was a place called Ocracoke Island on the Outer Banks of North Carolina. And Edith would also help Dare stage nude photographs of herself. She was very comfortable posing nude for her own private photo collection. But at the same time, she had also pretty severe sexual hangups.
0: Yeah, given how gorgeous she was, it's no surprise that Dare had many, many suitors or people, you know, that were trying to date her. She was even briefly engaged to a British pilot who was a friend of her brother's. But true intimacy was something that terrified her. She was very diffident and emotionally stunted. She liked flirting with men, but she would literally run away from anyone who tried to make a physical pass at her. There's actually a really heartbreaking story about a divorce lawsuit that Dare got dragged into. So there was a socialite woman in New York who wanted to divorce her husband, but he was refusing. So she basically baited Dare. She saw this attractive younger woman. She arranged for her husband to start helping Dare with her darkroom photography stuff. But then she sent a private eye to watch the husband go in and out of Dare's apartment. So, of course, the private eye thought they were having an affair. Dare was dragged into court and the newspapers because of all this. She was, you know, seen as the other woman, which was really tragic and mortifying because she was apparently a virgin. So there was nothing going on. He truly was just helping her in the dark room. Um, it was just a total trumped up accusation of adultery. And the defense lawyers for the husband, they had a last resort plan that they were going to give medical evidence of Dare's virginity in court to help their case, but the husband wound up settling. So it never came to that.
1: Oh my gosh. And can you imagine if that happened now in today's day and age? I mean, nobody should be put through that. Like her name was all over the newspapers. It was, it must've been horrible. I know. And for somebody who already had a lot of issues about intimacy and shyness and stuff like that, it must've been agony for her. Yeah. So sad.
0: So everyone who knew her described her Despite her glamorous and fashionable persona, they said she was really ethereal and childlike and, quote, not of this world. And she was also damaged. So think of like a fairy with broken wings. That's that's the best Mm -hmm, way to think about her. She's also described as the sort of person you either instantly loved or you found exceedingly odd.
1: So how did the Lonely Doll books actually come about?
0: Yeah, so she had started to play around at home with her old doll Edith and the two stuffed bears. By this time, she'd given Edith a makeover because she was extremely creative and crafty. She was a genius at sewing clothes. She was an amazing interior designer. She was into carpentry. She was a great sketch artist. So she could transform almost anything. So she had sewn the little doll, Edith, a bunch of new doll clothes, and she sewed one of her own blonde hair pieces onto the doll's head. And then suddenly the doll here is looking remarkably like Dare herself, you know? Mm -hmm. So she started to set the toys up in and around her Manhattan apartment. She lived on West 58th Street. And like the many photographs she had taken of herself, she never intended on showing these doll pictures to anyone. But through happenstance, a friend of a friend in publishing had seen one photo that Dare had taken of a little boy who was a family friend with a teddy bear that she had given to him. And the publisher was like, you know, there might be something here. I like this idea with the photographs. That was all Dare needed. So she was introduced to somebody at Doubleday Publishing House. She showed up with an entire outline for a book featuring Edith and the two teddy bears. The idea got greenlit and the little doll Edith suddenly became her creative muse.
1: Right. And the first book, Simply Called the Lonely Doll, came out in 1957 and it was an instant hit. The book was just flying out of bookstores and getting tons of national publicity. And so sequels were quickly lined up. The year it came out, The Lonely Doll landed at number 14 on the New York Times children's bestsellers list. The Cat in the Hat was number one. And thanks to her dazzling looks, of course, Dare was an instant star. She didn't love all the attention because she was so shy, but she did love creating the books. Dare's mom told a reporter that Edith and the Bears were being insured by Lloyd's of London. Dare began keeping them in a safe deposit vault. And so for almost two decades, she worked on sequels, some of which also featured live animals, including The Doll and the Kitten, Edith and the Duckling, and Edith and Midnight, which featured a pony. Some were shot in the countryside where Dare's brother lived, but my favorites are the ones set in New York City, and I love that you get to see Dare's own apartment as the backdrop for so many of the tableau.
0: Yeah, and a lot of people think or speculate, you know, that the books were Dare's way of working through her own issues, that little bear and Mr. Bear represent the brother and father that she lost as a child. You could do a psychological deep dive, I think, but also Dare was just so freaking creative. I think she was really just using her imagination to tell these stories that she thought would charm people, and they do.
1: Yeah. And Amy, why did the books end up falling off people's radar? And what ultimately happened to dareright
0: I'm not completely sure why the books originally went out of print. I mean, maybe changing tastes, I guess. Uh, she did switch publishers at one point. She felt she was being denied creative freedom at Doubleday. Uh, so maybe that had something to do with it. I don't know. But the books have subsequently been reissued. But even still, it's not always easy to get your hands on all of them. And I think maybe the spanking stuff didn't help. It's not exactly the sort of gift that you're going to give to a young child, given those cringy elements. You know, it's not a new baby gift or anything like that. Parents would freak. But as for the rest of Dare's life story, it's definitely really tragic. First off, she went on to create some different children's books after the Lonely Doll series, including one called Lona, a fairy tale, which features Dare herself in the photos. She's dressed up as a cursed fairy princess named Lona, which is a play on the word alone or lonely, a lot of people think. Mm. So that running theme, you know. Mm She was nearing 60 when she did this book, by the way. And my God, if you look at pictures from it, she still looks unbelievable. She looked like she was in her 30s when she was pushing 60. It's really hard to believe. But after the death of her mom and then the death of her brother she quickly started to spiral. She went downhill. She was more lonely than she had ever been. She became more erratic. She became an alcoholic, very self-destructive. She ended up befriending transients in Central Park and would give them access to her apartment to sleep in. And as a result, some very bad things happened to her, which I won't get into, but I'm sure you can probably imagine. Uh, You can find out more about that in Jean Nathan's biography. It's truly, truly heartbreaking to read about Dare's final two decades of life. It really leaves you feeling empty.
1: It's so tragic, I mean, to think of that and then also knowing that these books are actually really a beautiful work of art. So let's instead try to remember all the glorious photographs she took and appreciate them and her amazing Lonely Doll books.
0: I agree. I mean, some people say the story of Dara Wright's life is a tragic one, but I do think that she really lived a charmed life in many ways. She always found beauty and magic and sparkle in the world around her. She had so many amazing adventures and in her own eccentric way, I think she lived a celebratory life. I think her story also would make an amazing movie or television show. I can picture somebody like Anya Taylor-Joy playing Dare, especially now that she has her hair platinum blonde. She looks a lot like that would
1: she would be perfect. Mm
0: -hmm. And actually, I recently read that a musical about Dare Wright is in the works. So the playwrights behind that are named Tasha Gordon-Solomon and Faye Chiao, Chiao. I don't know how to say her last name.
1: That sounds really amazing, especially in this Instagram age where photographs are everything. It seems like she would be more relevant than ever before. For sure. So Dare Wright had her dolly, and the protagonist of next week's novel has a dolly of her own, a character by the name of Dolly, we should clarify.
0: Yeah, and like Dare and Edie Wright's relationship, this book involves a
1: beautiful ingenue who is dependent on a manipulative maternal figure. That's exactly right. And her actions have consequences. We'll be discussing Moths, a classic from 1880 by the prolific English author Wida, which is a pseudonym of Maria Louise Ramey. Until next week, don't forget to sign up for our Lost Ladies of Lit newsletter to keep up to date on all the future authors we'll be covering. And if you have a moment, please give us a rating and review wherever you listen to this podcast. Those five-star
0: reviews really help. So long, everybody. Our theme song was written and performed by Jenny Malone and our logo was designed by Harriet Grant. Lost Ladies of Lit is produced by Kim Askew and Amy Helms.